You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. We gather on this Friday evening every year to commemorate the darkest hour in the world in history. So tonight is a somber night. It's a serious night. We have an opportunity now to settle our minds and hearts upon the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want to start by reading a quote from a New Testament scholar. His name is N.T. Wright, and he says this about crucifixion. Few are likely to have seen, except on screen, the kind of violence that was common in the first century. Even those who watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ might either screen out the gratuitous horror of it all, or be so overwhelmed by the physical brutality as to miss the point that such a death was designed to degrade as well as to kill. Crucifixion was one of the central ways in which authorities in the ancient world set out to quite deliberately show subject peoples who was in charge and to break the spirit of any resistance. Crucifixion was, after all, one of the most horrific fates that humans could devise. That isn't a modern overstatement. Cicero refers to crucifixion as the most cruel and terrifying penalty. Josephus speaks of a Jewish protest against the most pitiable of deaths. Origen refers to it as the most shameful form of death, namely the cross. The point is often made but bears repetition. We in the modern West who wear jeweled crosses around our necks, stamp them on our Bibles, and prayer books and carry them in cheerful processions need regularly to be reminded that the very word cross was not a word you would most likely utter in polite society. The thought of it would not only put off your dinner, it would give you sleepless nights. If you had actually seen a crucifixion or two, as many in the Roman world would have, your sleep itself would have been invaded by nightmares as the memories came flooding back. Memories of humans half alive, and half dead, lingering on perhaps for days on end, covered in blood and flies, nibbled by rats, pecked at by crows, with weeping but helpless relatives still keeping watch, and with hostile or mocking crowds adding their insults to terrible injuries. And we just sang together, it was my sin that held him there. And it's true. My rejection of God's love and my rejection of God's wisdom have put me at odds with Him. And my pride in thinking that I can govern my own life better than God is an outrageous rebellion. And my insatiable need to be justified before others has produced in me death and has harmed others. We are guilty. Psalm 5, 4-6 through puts it very frankly. Listen to this. It says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before, you, before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Evil you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And it was my sin that held him there. I belong on the cross. My sin earned curse. But Jesus, in the greatest act of mercy that we'll ever know, steps in our place and is inflicted with the curse instead. He atones. So tonight, it's sober. It's a heavy reminder. It should be a time of mourning and grieving. 
we should feel the weight of this dreadful day. We should feel the weight of crucifixion. Therefore, what I want to do first is I want to enter into together this story. I want to enter into the crucifixion experience. Start with me in verse 17 then. It says that Jesus, he bears his own cross. Now remember, Jesus has just received a Roman scourging, okay? Which means his hands would have been chained above his head, his backs and legs exposed to an executioner's whip called the cat of nine tails. Two men, one on each side, taking turns whipping him. Now, the whip was a series of long leather straps. At the end of some of these straps were heavy balls of metal intended to tenderize the body. Some of the straps had hooks made of glass and metal or bone that would have sunk deeply into his shoulders and back and behind and legs. Once the hooks had lodged into his tenderized flesh, the executioner would then rip his skin, muscle, tendons, and even bones off of his body. His skin and muscles would hang off his body like ribbons as the hooks dissected the skin to the nerve layers. The damage could be so deep that even his lungs could be bruised which made breathing difficult. Medical experts who have studied the crucifixion done by the Romans say that this physical trauma is similar to that of a shotgun blast. In the other accounts, we know that Jesus, as he's carrying this cross to the skull, he falls. This 100-pound wooden beam falling on him, crushing him, we know then, therefore, that this likely bruised his heart, similar to sustaining uh, uh, physical trauma on your body in a car accident if you weren't wearing your seatbelt. And it is in this condition that Jesus bears his own cross for miles, not to mention the severe loss of blood and exhaustion from a night of no sleep, and it continues at Golgotha. It says, there they crucified him. Now the pain of crucifixion is so horrendous that a word was invented to explain it, the word excruciating. It literally means from the cross. And Jesus would have five to seven inch nails driven into the most sensitive nerve centers of his body, his hands and his feet. And furthering the pain of crucifixion is that it's a prolonged and agonizing death by asphyxiation. Every breath Jesus drew would be a great labor. To hold himself up on the weight of his feet or hands would only add to the anguish. And none of this was done in, in dignified privacy. In open public, though, it was done. Crowds would gather around him, mock him as he sweated in the sun, bled, became incontinent from the pain. More than likely, he was crucified at eye level so that passerbys could look at him directly in the eye as he died and curse him and spit on him in mockery. It says in verse 18, as you continue with him to others, one on either side as, and Jesus between them. Now to add insult to injury, here's an innocent man, a good man, dying between two criminals as a criminal. Continues on, 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The crimes would be posted above the heads of these criminals in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, so all could read it and understand that this is what happens to enemies of Rome. If you ever mess with Rome, this is what happens to you. And what's this man's crime? Everyone thinks that he's a fraudulent messiah who threatened Rome and was put down for it. Jesus, in other words, is being used as a billboard that this is what happens to your kings. This is what happens when you oppose us. Continues on in 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garment, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. 
The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Now, with absolute disregard for the human suffering before their eyes, these sadistic soldiers wager for his clothes. His clothes are treated with more dignity than this innocent man is. 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Can you imagine being tortured in front of your parent? Or your child being tortured in front of you? It's gut-wrenching, it's sad, it's horrible. And Jesus here is gasping for breath, going into shock, naked and embarrassed with a pool of sweat and blood gathered at the base of the cross with his mother looking on nearby. In verse 29, it says, A jar full of sour wine stood, of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now this is the cheap wine that turned sour. It's not good wine. It wouldn't sedate the pain at all. It wouldn't dull the pain at all. Jesus has already turned away that kind of wine. Jesus is merely thirsty and likely needs something to help him get his final words out of his parched mouth. The guards are doing this, giving him this drink, not in mercy but in mockery. They give him this wine on a sponge. This is the toilet paper of their day. This is what they would use after relieving themselves. So then due to blood loss, physical trauma, his heart's inability to pump blood to his body, medical experts think it's likely that Jesus either had an aneurysm or a heart attack. So he sensed his time was drawing near, and lucidly and audibly he gave up his spirit and states, it is finished. So what is the crucifixion experience? If we were to sum it up, it's physical pain, it's public shame, it's personal rejection, it's human disintegration, it's spiritual darkness, it's a long and slow death in every way you can think of it, personally, culturally, psychologically, spiritually, and physically. And it was my sin that held him there. That's my pain, and that's my shame, and that's my rejection, that's my unraveling and my alienation, that's what I deserve, that's what I have earned, but Jesus took my place. Now this is an awful travesty, and we would all say Jesus is the victim of absolute injustice here, and it's true. He's the victim of injustice, but here's what you need to know. Jesus does not consider himself a victim. From our perspective, Jesus' life, his honor, have been taken from him. But from Jesus' perspective, he's already told us what his aim is in this, what's going on here really. Back in John chapter 10, it says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father Jesus is obeying a plan that was predestined before the foundations of the world, and this is his moment. Jesus knows something that no one knows at this moment. Every affliction actually is fulfilling his purpose. Jesus is carrying with him in his heart a secret that likely only he knows at this moment. Let's talk about that. What's Jesus' secret? So far, let's review. 
We've seen Jesus carry his own cross, then it's set up between two criminals. Jesus put one foot in front of the other and allowed his arms to be stretched out and nailed. Why would he do that? Because Isaiah 53 tells us that there will be a sufferer one day who is pierced for our transgressions and who poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Jesus is pursuing a situation here that lines up perfectly with this prophetic passage about this future sufferer. Why? It's not just because this is a passage about a future Messiah who will suffer, but it's also because this is a passage about a future Messiah who will be victorious, who will suffer triumphantly. Because it says also in that passage, in that prophetic portion, by his wounds we are healed. I will divide with him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Onlookers see Jesus as weak and helpless and humiliated. But Jesus understands there's more than meets the eye. There's an end game here that no one else can see but him. His aim is to heal us, and his aim is to number us among the many and among the strong. We've seen Jesus mocked by Pilate, used as a taunt and a warning to the Jews that Rome reigns, don't mess with Rome. He says Jesus is the king of the Jews. That's what's written above his head. But Pilate, he speaks better than he knows because Jesus really is the king. He is the king they refused. He's the king that they killed, but he is the king nonetheless. Now, he doesn't align. He doesn't align with the Jewish people's idea of a king and a kingdom, but he does align with God's. And as king, he is going to vanquish right now sin and death and hell. His kingdom is not going to be an earthly kingdom of human power and glory. His kingdom is going to be a spiritual reality that's accessed by faith until our faith becomes sight and Jesus returns and establishes his new world and his kingdom shall have no end. We've seen Jesus dishonored by the guards. We've seen him thirst and ask for a drink because these are instances a direct fulfillment of other prophetic passages. In Psalm 22, David writes this personal account of his suffering due to his enemy's hatred of him. If you read the entire Psalm, Psalm 22, it portrays something that looks a lot like crucifixion. John quotes a portion of that Psalm in his chapter here in verse 24. He says, So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill what Scripture says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. In Psalm 22, David says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. In Psalm 69, another similar psalm where David's righteous, yet he's experiencing hostile opposition from enemies. He writes there in Psalm 69, for my thirst they have given me sour wine to drink. So when Jesus says, I thirst, John writes in verse 28 that Jesus does this to fulfill the scripture. Jesus is not fulfilling these ideas of suffering kings merely because his crucifixion fits their mold, but because he knows that both these psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, end in vindication for the king, that he's going to be proven to be righteous, that he's going to be proven to be God's man. In time, all will see what Jesus knows, that he is no fraud, that he is the king of the Jews, the only king, the righteous king. We've seen Jesus tortured before his own mother and close friends. But then John records this in 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. 
Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now this is incredible because in Jesus' excruciating hour, he's selfless and thinking about who's going to be taking care of his mother now that he is gone. But I think also more than that, although that's incredible, more than that what we're supposed to see is that Jesus is tipping his hand and forecasting what his death is about to create, a family that is forged by the cross. Because Matthew 19, 29 says, And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, lands for my sake, he will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus, he's tipping his hand. He's already introducing the effect of his death, a new cross-inspired community of people. We've seen Jesus given sour wine on a dirty sponge, but John adds a detail here that's significant in 29. He writes, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, John is the only gospel writer who includes this detail that was on a hyssop branch, that these men lifted this drink up to Jesus' parched lips. Now, the hyssop branch was used to cover the doorposts of each, of each home in Egypt the night of Passover. The hyssop branch is what the high priest would dip into the bucket of blood to splatter the blood on the Ark of the Covenant every day of atonement once a year. Jesus knows what he's doing. He asks for a drink to fulfill prophecy, but also to show us that he's making atonement, that he is that final Passover lamb, that he is the great high priest who's coming to make final permanent atonement. So we see Jesus in great weakness, but in his heart, he knows he's putting an end to sin and the need to celebrate Passover every year, the need to have a day of atonement every year. The Lamb of God has come, he has died, his death has removed the penalty of sin for good. We've seen Jesus breathe his last and then die. He says, it is finished. But the word he uses there in the original language is telos. It's different, a different kind of word for finished. Telos means a period of time has been brought to its intended end. Jesus endures this shameful and horrific abuse, then gives up his life because death, his death, is the final act in God's great redemption story. The story of Scripture is that God is pursuing reconciliation with lost humanity. But first, the curse of sin had to be erased through atonement. So there could be reconciliation in place of alienation. And Jesus has brought God's pursuit to its most intense climax. And now that pursuit has won because the curse is absorbed, atonement is made, and now for God's people there's nothing between us and God but love. We've seen Jesus pierced. So water and blood flow from his side. Jesus, John records that this was a fulfillment of another scripture. He says that in verse 37. And that reference is Zechariah 12.10, where God is foretelling of a day where Israel and Judah will experience this spiritual revival. But what first must happen, Zechariah says, is he must be pierced. They must look on him whom they have pierced. Now, Zechariah is talking about himself, but Jesus is the true Zechariah who brings about this anticipated revival. But first, he must be pierced. 
But John also records this detail that water and blood is released from Jesus' body because this is exactly what Jesus' death accomplishes. It's full forgiveness of sin. Water would bring to mind the necessity of bathing in the temple before you would enter for worship. You were required to be ceremonially clean before you would approach God. And you had to shed blood, the blood of an unblemished animal to atone for your sin so that you could approach God. Jesus now has done what the temple system could never permanently do. He has made us acceptable before God. He has washed us with his water. He has atoned for us with his blood. So do you see the secret of the crucifixion? There's more than meets the eye. His life is not taken. He gives it up that we might receive full atonement and total reconciliation. The crucifixion, it's tragic. But within it hides a tremendous secret that Jesus, while losing, is winning. This is not a man in weakness. This is a man in victory. All of history is arriving as destiny in this moment on the cross. Every promise it's now kept. Every prophecy, it's fulfilled. Every shadow Jesus cast in the Old Testament has led us to his silhouette. Even though this is the worst Friday that has occurred and ever will occur, we call it Good Friday. The reason is because of what it achieved. Atonement acceptance from God. So what do we conclude? We've talked about the cross's experience. It's horrible, but there's a secret in the cross. So what do we conclude in the, cruci- the crucifixion's conclusion? What does this mean for you? If you've acknowledged that it was my sin that held him there, if you've acknowledged that, you know what this means? That God is not angry with you. God holds nothing against you. God is not fuming at you. Not now, not ever, because Jesus hasn't partially atoned. He hasn't drank some of the cup of God's wrath. He hasn't slightly reconciled. All of God's justice was poured out onto Jesus. One verse that has always boggled my mind is Romans chapter 5, verse 6. And Mark, you can come on up now and, and get ready to play as we pray here in a moment. Romans 5, 6 has always boggled my mind. It says that Jesus, at the right time, he died for the ungodly. At the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. Now, what does that mean, at the right time he did this? Why does it matter when Jesus dies? Why does it matter when Jesus enters into human history to, to die? I think it's pretty genius that God destined Jesus to enter into human history at a time when suffering and death was curated to perfection by the Romans. They perfected crucifixion so that they could keep someone on the threshold of death for days. God appointed the cruelest art form of death for Jesus so that we would have no doubt that all of God's violent wrath has been absorbed by Jesus. Jesus paid it all, all of it, nothing withheld. Truly, the only thing between us and God is love. That's why it's Good Friday. Terrible Friday for him. The best Friday for us. So if you agree 
that it was my sin that held him there, and Jesus paid it all. God has nothing, no anger against you, only love. In response to this hard yet comforting reality, I want us to enter into a time now of prayer and confession and pardon. So Mark, come on up and we'll pray together through some scripture. So I invite you to stand now as we close. And on the screen behind me, there's going to be portions that are highlighted in yellow. I would invite you to read that aloud with me in a prayerful attitude. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Gracious God, Our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name and what our hearts can no longer bear. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards the, sorry, different translation, (laughs) towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. You are dismissed. It is Friday, but Sunday is coming. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.